Uh, my name is Elliot Faber. I'm the beverage director for Yardburg Ronin and Sunday's Grocery in Hong Kong. Don't sound so excited, though. <laughs> Just- <laughs> I'm mildly enthusiastic about it. Um, and I do a lot of work in the Japanese food and beverage industry and share it across the world. I'm Lindsay Jang, and I am the co-founder of Yardbird, Ronin, Sunday's Spirits, and Miss Bish. So obviously that we came together today to talk a little bit about what you guys deem to be kind of this once in a lifetime experience when you went to Sakeo. Maybe you can speak a little bit before you even entered the doors. Like how did you originally get put onto the space? Uh, well, first of all, I should say that uh, it's called Sake Baro, but it actually doesn't matter that you called it Sakeo because it really has no name. And even the circle is just kind of a placeholder because it's meant to be a secret spot that is going to make you feel like you're in a totally different place. And they do it right away. Um, I guess by saying how I found it first, a friend of a friend told me that a new secret sake bar opened and I happened to be going to Tokyo the next day. So I asked this friend to contact their friend to contact the people who run that bar and see if there was a space for them. And uh, she contacted them and they had a space. But she said it's very hard to find. And at this time, the bar had just opened. So she sent me a really kind of fuzzy, low quality JPEG image that was all in like really kind of dark colors and in, in Japanese and just images of very vague locations and arrows leading from one to the next. But I eventually learned that it was just outside of the Nakameguro station in Tokyo. You needed to pass by Tsutaya Bookstore and then find a chain izakaya um, that looked like any other place, loud and, and lit and bright, as you can imagine a bustling Tokyo train station would be. Um, so you go into that uh, izakaya and when you ask about a sake bar, they don't know what you're talking about. Is that deliberate, you think? Uh, I think they actually, I think, I think most of the know. staff don't actually know <laughs> that it's there. Because uh, once you eventually find your way through the izakaya and go behind the curtain past the bathrooms, there's an unmarked door that basically takes you to the other floors of this building. Um, and as soon as you go through that door, you go up the stairs. It's a walk up. And each floor gets darker and darker as you go above. And you do hear some noise coming from some of the floors, but it's either residential or, or a bar, but it, everything's unmarked. When you walked up the stairs for the first time or even into the building for the first time, Lindsay, what was your, what was initially going on through your head? Uh, I mean, how much were you prefaced? No, 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 like zero. So I was actually kind of pissed because we had a long day in, we had gotten back from another prefecture in Japan, gotten back to Tokyo, had dinner with, I can't even remember, the owners, the owner of the sake bar but nobody would tell me anything about it. So we were like super full from dinner. Um, I was so full from dinner, the drinks at dinner, that I didn't even really want, I didn't have any space to go to drink more, but we were with the owner and the sake sommelier who does the programming for the sake. So I couldn't be rude, especially in Japan. So we go and all of a sudden we're at this like huge, loud izakaya and I look at Elliot and I literally was like, are you serious? Like, I'm. this is what you dragged me to? And he's like, just wait, just wait. And so we, you guys have seen it, went through like this 
crazy back yeah. walkway up a bunch of stairs. I mean, at that point, you also had like a blind trust. Like you, this is your first time going too, right? No, no, no. I've oh, been there. Been? I've okay. been there a few times before. I oh, like to okay, take great. people there. Okay. That's uh, why he wouldn't tell me. Oh, okay. He I wouldn't tell me anything happening. about it. Yeah. He's like, I just want you to see it or experience it. And so then when we got to the top of the stairs, after probably like two minutes of walking, and then they opened the door and I literally like, I like stopped, lost my breath, which never happens, but it was un, it was just so uh, unexpected. What would you say was like unexpected about it? Was it the, the buildup or was the actual interior decor of it? No, it was like actually the real contrast between just everything you experienced to get to that doorway and then you open the door and you're like all of a sudden in the most sacred, silent, dark, special place. It was literally the opposite of where I had come from and what I was anticipating. So I have a question in, in regards to what do you think a space like this does for Saka in general, in terms of the experience? Like what what makes, you know, being at Sake Bar O different from if you're drinking at any other bar? Well, I find it interesting that I fell in love with the place as much as I did because I'm a huge advocate for the casual enjoyment of sake. I want people to drink sake with cheeseburgers and to like just really make it something that is is integrated with global food and beverage culture. So when you go into a place like this, um, it's experience that stands apart from, I think, a traditional sake experience, which is like where maybe all the grandpas hang out and enjoy good sake versus like something ultra modern, like an izakaya that's loud and international, like say something like Yardbird, for example. But this is something that is another dimension. It's it's totally unique. Um, and I don't know where else in the world you can do it. And I've joked about that with the owner because he's quite ambitious. But I don't think that he realizes how special even that one space is and how hard it would be to duplicate anywhere else. I think we can all agree that um, like it is a space like unlike any other you could visit in Tokyo, much less the world. Of course, when we went, we had a, um, you know, a certain view of it, like the lights were on and, you know, we're there for a specific purpose, but you guys were there when the, the space is actually live, you know, ready to, you know, take in guests. Could you tell us a little bit about, you know, what the space looks like? It kind of sucks that you guys went in there with the lights on because it's forever <laughs> ruined. When I walked in, it's black, it's pitch black. And then there's this one skylight that shoots a beam of light down onto whatever plant or flower or like Ikebana they have that week or day. I don't know how often they change it. Twice a week. Twice a week. And then you just, I don't know. It's like you're, you're in, I immediately felt like I was in space, like outer space. And I was even too, like I said, I was too full. I didn't even drink sake. Like I held the glassware and I would politely sip some of it, but I was literally to the brim and I still had this crazy experience there without even drinking the sake. Unfortunately, the owner doesn't speak English. So we had this entire conversation translated through Kumi-san. And I was expressing how I felt so 
you know, removed from, it's like all your senses have been taken away from you. Like you're in a vacuum sort of. So the only thing left to focus on is like what is right in front of you. And then he was explaining to me how he was inspired by the movie Interstellar. And so like my whole reference is to like this feeling of like being removed and feeling sort of not in touch with tangible things was like exactly what he was going for. So it was really kind of, for me, it was so awesome to meet somebody who was doing something with such a clear, specific goal. And then I I totally interpreted that. I don't know how Elliot feels. Well, what's amazing about about Jun Onishi is that he works in IT and he has no... Jun being the owner. Jun being the owner, yes. He has no uh, real experience in FMB other than having good friends and knowing what he likes and, you know, taking time to meet artists and to really work with them to develop a vision that he has. Um, it's very interesting because he has another place and it's a smoky Osaka style yakiniku restaurant and it's awesome and it's the opposite of sake baro but an equal passion and an equal kind of feeling in, in like instilled into the place so what jun did what onishi-san did is he chose the best people that he thought he could work with to create the best vision possible and when he hired Kumi Hitomi, who's uh, actually a graphic designer, but also a certified sake sommelier, uh, he hired a female to manage a sake program, which I thought was really, as well, not just myself, but actually is just very interesting in Japan. Um, to have a female sommelier, younger, um, but she's bilingual. She's got, for me, one of the best palettes that I've tasted sake with. And she's very ambitious as well and very eager to introduce sake to people. You know, to give you an idea of his dedication and kind of the way we connected, the first time I went in there, um, well, I should say, you know, my Japanese is conversational at best. So I can make friends and I can get around, but I can't go deep as, as, as much as I would like to. And when I went in there, there was one man behind the bar I didn't make a reservation. I just, well, they said I was coming, but I just said I'm coming on such and such a day. So I came in, I was one of the only people in there, as is often the case. And I was loosely speaking back and forth with the bartender. And he contacted the owner, Jun-san, to say that I was here. So Jun came in and we had a great conversation about sake and just eating and drinking in Japan and around the world. And the next thing I knew I was in a taxi and he took me to his other place his yakiniku place and we went there and we had a great food and enjoyed and the whole time speaking about this uh this this goal and idea of opening up the way people perceive sake culture the way people enjoy it the way people feel in an izakaya that it can be how can you bring that to a wider audience and how can you show a certain style to different people so even that yakiniku place is an osaka style place so even if you're from tokyo you go in there and you feel as if you're somewhere else this is a sort of a, a more general generalist question, but given the different backgrounds that were brought together, Kumi, um, Junsan, do you believe that there's something to be said that food in general as we know it, it's so 
foundationally, everyone knows food, that it takes a little bit of outside perspective to really sort of push it forward. Like, can you rely on simply people that, let's just use an example, a family that has a lineage of, of being restaurateurs, are they able to really push food forward into the you know, into the modern era versus someone with an outsized perspective. Um, the IT background, I think, is what's really fascinating about him and how he views, you know, problem solving and how he designed his restaurant, etc. Well, it's it's ironic, you know, and I think I'll let you decide if you want to put this in because I don't want it to sound offensive in any way. But when you go into Sake Bar O, if you look at the way it's designed, if you really take time, and I've been there so many times now, so I look around and I see everything a lot more than I did the first few times, it's not a functional space. So the kitchen, you have to walk out. There's no running water in the bar. And you could argue that he did it on purpose because it's really about the sake that's in front of you and the glassware and the direct lighting on the beautifully crafted tin table. You know, so it's hard because that's why I said earlier that, you know, he wants to open in other places, but I wonder, you know, where else can you do something exactly the same as this? You do get the feeling coming from um, coming from an F&B perspective, you know, you're always looking or your mind starts running about like how much volume do they have to do to break even? How much is their rent? Wow, how much did he pay this guy to hammer this uh, vintage tin into a bar? Like what happens with the magnum of sake that they opened when it goes bad and they don't have enough? Like those are the things that I'm thinking about. And I think because I'm sure his Yakiniku restaurant makes money it's or is profitable yeah. because of the volume purely, although I haven't been there, but also because he's successful in another career. This is sort of, and I don't want to underplay his passion for it, but it's definitely not what he's paying his rent with, I'm guessing. Yeah. So there's a different level of, you can always tell when you walk into somewhere and you know that budget was not necessarily a concern and he's it's almost like a dedication to his love of sake it's, and you know what that's exactly what it is and he said that to me before yeah but i mean from a business perspective you know it's an amazing experience but really how many people are going to get to experience it do you guys think that for you guys obviously being seasoned fnb veterans it says something for you to go into that space and to be inspired because I think that there's something that you guys are taking away getting inspired from that holistically might see itself in some capacity into like future projects or like you know you'll spread the message and all of a sudden F&B as we know it somehow some way things get better as a, as a whole industry I mean I think people are getting more and more creative it's just if it's your bread and butter and how you pay your bills, it's really difficult to do like any job or any industry. Um, but I think that if you have a high taste level or you, you know, you are looking for these new experiences, it is people like June and Kumi who get to do whatever they want with their space and their product without really having to take on the full responsibility I should say of like a restaurant that's open from set hours you know and has to hit certain numbers and has these other operational costs because I don't even think they open if no one comes in like you know what I mean 
I think that it inspires. And Jun Sun wanted to have a place to show his friends uh, and a place to hang out. He wanted a place to show his homage to sake. And I think that if people go in who appreciate how to drink and how to how to even have a small snack. We didn't talk about otsumami, but the simplicity of fresh ground wasabi and the best salt you could find and, you know, locally cured karasumi like uh, botarga and all the little things, carefully selecting a nice comte cheese to match a certain sake. All the details that he looked for will make an impact on not only people who are in the food and beverage industry, but it will also show people a new way to appreciate sake, which is what I value. Um, I value a chance. Any Anybody who can show a new way to enjoy sake, and I'll be honest, I don't always agree with it, but I never speak badly about new sake brands or sake products because sake is an industry that needs to grow and is growing. So it's kind of like there's no such thing as bad publicity at this point. Can I just run like a little, like almost like an exercise just to see sort of different perspectives on where sake is currently? Like, obviously you're you're the expert, but from your perspective, Lindsay, as someone who integrates it into everything they do in some capacity, how do you view where sake is currently? Um, well, it's definitely growing. Statistically, it's growing. You know, export and uh, consumption is growing. I just think that it... For so many people, um, it's very foreign. And a lot of the breweries, probably most, if not all, don't really cater to an English or non-Japanese speaking customer. And so for the longest time, it's it's been very, you know, people like to be confident when they order and know what they're ordering. So I think sake requires more education and it's the learning curve is definitely steeper than a lot of other alcohols. So I always compare it like in the U.S. as an example, you know, you'll see sake on menus basically on all the in the coastal states. But then in the red states in the middle, you, you know, people don't know what it is. And probably they're drinking, if they drink sake, they're drinking hot sake. It's coming out of like a box, which is basically cooking wine. And so there's such a huge disparity between understanding what sake is and how to enjoy it and what most people probably assume it to be. That was a interesting thing you point out that, yeah, it is still, um, I mean, I, I do know he's trying to, you know, kind of take sake to like a greater audience and as you said before he'll probably do that with the um izakaya style which is by sheer volume more people get to experience that but like when i first uh started you know kind of thinking about you know this discussion i was already thinking you know would i be is it accurate to say that this place is basically a sake speakeasy place that's you know obviously very hidden away that's designed for you know, some quiet conversation, but also the appreciation of a given alcohol. So from your perspective, could you maybe just to put things in perspective for people listening, what the differences you feel there are between a, you know, a sake speakeasy and your traditional speakeasy? Well, I mean, first of all, that's a great way to look at it. I think a sake speakeasy is exactly 
what it is. Uh, a traditional, either way, a speakeasy is a place that was developed in a time where people weren't really supposed to be drinking. So it was a quiet place to go and hang out and, and drink amongst your friends. I think the concept works because it really is a member's place. So uh, as, a, as a secret bar, you really have to know somebody who's been there in order to go there. And that really creates a feeling of, it already makes you feel special when you go in. And then it, let's say for Lindsay now, Lindsay might not contact June directly, but she might contact me and then I'll contact June and it slowly grows. But Lindsay still feels like, oh, I was able to get my friend who I really thought would appreciate this place to go inside and, and experience this. So it grows quietly, but it also controls the nature of the people who are going inside. So rather than compare like a sake speakeasy to a traditional speakeasy, it's more about comparing a, a sake speakeasy to your everyday Tokyo sake bar. So any sake bar that has some cachet or popularity, people can walk inside, anyone can walk inside and they'll be given a specific experience. And the quality of sake might be as good as the quality of sake in Sake Bar O. And the variety might be greater. The glassware will probably not be the same, but the certain atmosphere and the certain presentation is something that cannot be duplicated. Whereas your regular sake bar, you can find at different corners. And there are really special sake bar in Tokyo that are not secret. That's for another show, I suppose. But there's a lot, you know? But the what this does is a, is a highly unique experience and one that you can't go somewhere else to, to experience, yeah. I think, I think one thing that, uh, when I was thinking like that, this is just an aside, when you mentioned the, the lack of functionality with it. Because when we we're in there and they were pouring the glasses um, of sake, I was very in tune with all the sounds made. And like, I think even running water in itself would probably- Would have been a distraction. Yeah. So although it might be less functional, you can't tell him that he didn't think about it because maybe he did think about it and he was like, I don't care. I'm not going to have the sound of running water in my bar if they need to pile up the glasses and remove them and- wash them in the back in the kitchen, then that's what they'll do. I think um, like there's a lot of intent um, with a lot of decisions he made. Um, obviously, whether or not he decided to cut the running wire, like that's one thing, but he definitely, you know, he has those spotlights in there, those individual spotlights yeah. in front of each guest where I believe he puts down the bottle that they're enjoying mm -hmm. right in front of them. Mm -hmm. So that is, it. it kind of, it guides your focus. To, that is what you're experiencing, that sake and the sake you're drinking right now. I think too, the, those lights, you know, the, they're like track lights. I'm, I think he pulled them down. So actually, I can't remember if they explain it, but it's so that you have privacy. Yeah, you're not so supposed to be able to look across the yeah, bar. Yeah, if there's someone across the bar from you, you actually don't have a line, uh, line of sight so that every single person feels alone or in private, even if the bar is full, which would be like eight people. Yeah. Do, do you feel that there's a level of pretension that exists? And if so, under why is this acceptable under these circumstances? Or like, how do you view pretension in food experiences? It's a good question. It could be presented in a certain way that would feel pretentious, but it feels so humble when you're in that space. I feel like it's, 
even if you don't know the story, I think especially if you know the story about Jun and him hiring Kumi and Kumi's selection of sake and the way it's presented, I think you really for sure would feel humility. But even if you don't know, even though it feels so raw and the, the cold touch of the metal and the individual spotlights and the ultra thin, the usuhari, the kimura glass, when they put it in your hand, it's expensive. All that stuff is expensive. And that is not a cheap sake bar either. But somehow I never feel that I'm in a high class scenario. I don't feel like I'm in Ginza, which I'm not, but you don't feel that you're in a place that is high society. You feel that you're with people that really want to go and drink sake and they want to enjoy it in the most private environment. It's almost like going, if there were a bar that was like that and served natural wines, which don't reach, often don't reach the prices of, of more famous iconic wines out of you know, Bordeaux or Burgundy, for example. But you go in there and you're drinking these wines, but you're drinking out of the best wine glasses in the most quiet scenario to really be alone with these wines that are completely minimalist in their production. And you're drinking them, you know, it would be, would you say that is a snobby experience? Or would you say... Sounds like your wet dream. Oh, yeah. Well, if I could go from room to room, (laughs) then it is. And there's got to be cheese. Yeah. Yeah. No, but I think that the... Like, I wouldn't send everyone there. It's definitely not a recommendation that I give to most people. Like, you know, if you're like, I'm going to Tokyo, what should I do? And there, it's like first time in Japan... Or, you know, because Japanese culture, as you guys all know, is so different. And like how you pay respect and how you behave. And all these things are, you. I think you have to appreciate that before you're allowed to go in some place like that. Like you can't just walk in with, you know, your voice raised and yelling and waving for service. Like it's ceremonious. It's not meant to be, um, it's casual feeling, but at the same time, like I feel like going there, you don't take that invitation lightly. You don't want to lose your, your cosign or your invite. No, like there's so many people that I would not ever mention that place to, (laughs) (laughs) you know, versus people that I would think that would appreciate it. I was going to kind of start rounding out the conversation and talking a little bit about the actual tangible side of it, like the actual sake selection that Kumi has put together. Maybe you can speak a little bit about what's so special about it or how do you think it plays with the space itself, the cohesion of it? I'll speak personally first and then I'll tell you what I know she did because basically a lot of my sake experience happens in the west of Japan. Although I've tasted a lot of sake from around the world, my my office, my business location in Japan is in Kansai area. So coming from a background where a lot of my work is based out of the Kansai area, although I work with sake from all over Japan, I have a specific kind of focus and I lean a little bit towards, you know, around Kobe and Osaka and all the prefectures surrounding that part of Japan. Kumi-san's from Tokyo. So she deals a lot with the north and then heading towards the mountains a little bit to the west where Nagano is. So her and I have different different sakes reach us first. 
Let's put it that way. So I maybe can get my hands on what she has and she can get her hands on what I have. But together, we're, we see different things first. So basically what happens in Japan is you usually don't buy direct from the brewery. You buy from a local sake shop who buys from the brewery. So her sake ten, her sake shop is very different from my sake shop. And I think they have, they both have a focus on what's called jizake, which is microbrewery, small batch producers, but her selection is so different. So when I first went in there and I tasted the sake that she was presenting, I was so impressed and it was so nice to have a variety of seasonal sake, also very, very uh, carefully stored and presented namazake, unpasteurized sake. It was very pure. And I think the way she stores her sake, as well as the relationship that she's developed with her sake provider really comes across in the product that you drink. And one thing that's important to note is that she does have kind of a signature sake that's from Hiroshima that she works with. And that sake is actually called, um, this is why I'm looking at my phone because I want to find what the sake is. Oh, of course. So... Kumi works with a, a producer from Hiroshima and she has one called Ugo no Tsuki, which means moon after the rain. And the bottle, the presentation of it, the taste, the brightness, the kind of steely undertone, but still the minerality and the purity of it, especially when it's presented as an unpasteurized product, it really resonates when you drink it in that space. So the the crown achievement of what she did outside of her her incredible sake selection is that the iconic house sake that they have is the perfect sake for that room. And in fact, it's actually bottled only for them. It was it's a pretty special experience to have that sake in there. I think I guess in cl- conclusion how would someone listening to this have the opportunity to go or is it really very difficult? Well, first you need to sign up for a Macon membership <laughs> if you haven't already. I didn't tell him to say that, but I appreciate it. <laughs> well, to be honest, I think the best way would be to yeah, find contact myself or contact you guys and you guys contact me and it grows that way because I feel like if Kumi were on here, she would say, contact me and tell me you want to come, but she's not, it's me. And I'm one of the first customers and I don't know. I don't know the other way to say. Just through word of mouth. Try sake. Just ask. Yeah, and just drink sake and then you'll find your way there. And you know what? Maybe sake bar O for us, how do I say this? Maybe everybody has their own sake bar O. So this is a unique, well, let me, let me clarify. I disagree. Let me clarify. As if we're people that are constantly out eating and drinking all the time, if you're, well, I don't know how to explain it. I mean, there is no other sake bar but what if you live in New York where, you know, and you're listening to this, you need to find your own bar to go and no, sit I mean, and I drink sake. I mean, everyone will have their favorite bartender and favorite yeah. drink and favorite bar stool and yeah. favorite place you told a story from. But there's nowhere in New York. I've never been yeah. anywhere in the world. You would where never you feel exactly like that. Like you do in Japan. You would never feel exactly like that. But I guess all I'm trying to say is that I feel like we touched on on two points while we're talking. The first thing and the the main theme and the main topic is about Sake Baro. What it is, why is it special? But the other thing is, 
how to drink sake, how to enjoy sake. So I guess that's the real, that's the real other message that I would, I would say to people is yes, if you're in Tokyo, ask somebody, find Sake Bar O, try to check it out. But if you are in New York or if you're in Cleveland or in Ottawa, go and drink sake that's around you and ask somebody who's drank, who's enjoyed more sake than you. Elliot also has a book called Sake, (laughs) which you can buy on Amazon. .co.jp and .com. But, But really like that's, that is a very unique experience in the world and there is nothing like it. And I can say that with 100% confidence. However, don't wait to try to go there to try sake. That's the message. You'll appreciate it more too. Exactly. So to, I guess, put a bit of punctuation on this, um, if you guys were to throw out one brand that's more available as like a beginner sake to get people started, could you give me one? Sundays. Sundays. <laughs> yeah. Sundaysgrocery.com, sakecentral.com. You'll find all of your information there. Absolutely. Thanks a lot for your guys' time. Thank you Thanks very for much. Thanks for having us.